The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, will you give grace this morning by your Spirit here in this room and at work in me to preach, as it were, through tears. Of course, not necessitating literal tears, but with an attitude of sorrow. Far from an attitude of triumphalism or anger or delight, even worse. Give to us sober-mindedness this morning as we consider the subject that you bring up for us in your word by your spirit off the lips of Jesus himself. Help us to consider it rightly. Consider it rightly in the sight of, of the fact that most of us here are believers. Why did he say this to believers? How is this meant to be helpful to us? Help us to think about that always in the back as we listen to this passage and think it through. And for those here, Lord, if if there are some here who hear this later who don't know you, would you give to them clarity of understanding? Would you open eyes and would you save? So help us to deal with this well, to deal with this in the light of the fact that you are the judge of our hearts and that you are a sweet Savior and that you are the living water that calls us to come and be satisfied. Those are sweet and precious truths and they, they sit in a context, though, that there is, there is a though. Though if you don't, there is sorrow. As we perhaps lean on one foot this morning and consider the sorrow, let us not forget the other. And when we have opportunity to touch back to it, Lord, cause it to run through us and and give us delight and hope and call people to be saved, please, this morning. We ask you, Spirit of God, to give grace to us to preach and to hear through tears what Jesus has to say to the church. It's in his name and for his honor and for the upbuilding of us, his people, we pray. Amen. We are in Luke 10, and as we saw last week, we are still in this section of the chapter where Jesus is preparing a group of witnesses to go ahead of him as he makes his way through Israel on the way to Jerusalem in the the final confrontation in the cross. And he sends them all out to places where he is about to go, a large group of men, two by two, and he does so because, as he put it in verse two, it's harvest time. There is a plentiful harvest to be gathered in. He uses an agricultural analogy to talk about this this idea of witnessing to Jesus and, and witnessing about his kingdom that's coming and inviting people to come to this Jesus who pays for sin and brings peace. He uses an agricultural analogy so that we can understand that in the course of redemptive history, it has now come to this point where God has decided to send his son and is about to decide to call up his son through the cross. And so now is the time to be gathering in followers. And he's, he's talking about this period that we live in now, 
where the gospel goes forward and people are drawn in. He has a people that he is seeking out everywhere. There is a great harvest that's, that's hopeful. And so we go out hopeful and focused on, on the work that's at hand. Like at harvest time, you focus on what's at hand, what must happen now. You go out eager, knowing that you're gathering in life. That's what they are to do. That's what we are to do. We are to go out focused and eager and prayerful, asking him to send out more laborers to join us in the work. And as we go out, we know with confidence that he is the one guiding our steps. Wherever we find ourselves, that's where he has led us. He takes us there, and amazingly, when you think about it, who we are, we are just fallen people. But amazingly, we are there in God's stead. He said twice, you come, not Jesus, you, the people of Jesus, Jesus living inside of you, you come and you bring the kingdom of God near in word and in deed. We stand in God's stead, which is an amazing thing. We, the people of God, in Christ's power, God's spirit in us, we bring the kingdom of God near to be received or to be rejected. That was last week. Verses 10 to 12 in that passage ended on the note of rejection. It's harvest time and many will be gathered in, but most will reject the invitation of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Most will reject the invitation to peace with God and life in Christ, which is amazing and sad. It brings dreadful consequences, which brings us to our passage this morning. Jesus has something very serious to say, to teach, about the consequences. And notice he is still in the flow. These are all, if you're in your Bible, these are all in red letters. Jesus talking, still in the same flow of talking to those who actually are already believers, already disciples on the inside. So he's talking to them about these serious consequences of rejection. And it should have an effect of not just being spoken to those outside, but those inside. It should shape how we think about the world we live in, what we are about, and really what's going on. What the times are right now. What God is doing to produce a a sober-mindedness to, to life. It's a sober subject. Let me read the passage. I'm going to read verse 12 down through verse 16, and then I'll make three observations from it. Jesus said, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus' words in Luke 10. Three observations. Here's the first one concerning Jesus. And up to this point in the book, we have seen so much of 
the patient mercy of Jesus. And we have seen so much of the indiscriminate compassion and love and kindness of Jesus that has been on every page. He heals, he cares for, he reaches out to, he welcomes in people of all stripes and colors. That is true. That is Jesus. And we have seen so much of that so consistently that perhaps what we see this morning might be a bit of a surprise. But this is Jesus too. And the difference is not because he's, he's schizophrenic. It's, it's tied to the times. There is a time, and this is, this is his posture in the time of ingathering. It is gracious and it is compassionate. His hands open and, and outreached come in this time. That's the time we live in now. That should be our posture as well. But this time comes to an end, and after that there is a change. That, that's why we're talking about what seems like two different Jesuses. We're not talking about two different Jesuses. We're talking about two different times. And how the king reigns and rules in those times is different. And here's the first point about Jesus. He has all authority to judge all people on earth. Jesus has all authority to judge all people on earth. Verse 12 begins, I tell you, which is more than a simple way of saying, here's something I know that you don't, and I'll let you in on it. Even in English, when we say something like, well, I say, or let me tell you, there's, the person who says that is in some way kind of like taking a step up, claiming some, some right to set the record straight. We hear that even in English. Well, of Jesus' lips, throughout Luke and really throughout all the Gospels, he uses this phrasing, Repeatedly, again and again and again, he uses this language. And it's his way of separating himself out from other people and other prophets and other teachers and with commanding authority, standing above them. People heard it when he taught all the time, which is why they said, he doesn't teach like the scribes and Pharisees, he teaches as one who has authority. They say, Moses has said, God has said, the scriptures say, Jesus says, yes, and I say, He's claiming a unique authority, and he's claiming it. He's not just telling them something he knows, but something that either is or will be because he has already or is going to make it so. He himself. So we hear it in lots of places. For instance, we've heard it in Luke in chapter 5. I say to you, speaking of the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your mat and go home. Or later, speaking about the woman with great sin who was washing his hair, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This is Jesus revealing his authority to heal, to sanctify, to forgive, but in this case, to pronounce woe, the woe of judgment. And that's the main concern of this passage to hold up before our eyes the coming judgment administered by Jesus, applicable to all the earth. Those who reject his messengers, who reject his kingdom come near, he says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And he can tell us, because on that day he's the one who will do it. And he can tell us the verdict about Capernaum and its neighbors, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Woe to you. 
Woe to you, he says. That is, sorrow and catastrophe, destruction and loss to you from me. You shall be brought down to Hades, to, to the hell of eternal destruction. I say this because I'm the one with authority to do this, and I am going to do it. This is serious. This is Jesus, the King. And part of what it means to be a king is to be judge, to decide what goes in the kingdom and what doesn't. Luke records for us in Acts 17, verse 30, now, he's speaking about this time now, this is Paul, now this is the time of harvest, and now God commands people everywhere to repent, to turn to him. That's now, that's the hands open, come, 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 now. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. You hear the language there. There was a day that he appointed for the Son to come. The day is coming when he will take him up. And there is a day fixed and appointed when Christ will return. There is a day fixed. He has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's Paul preaching. How do we know who the judge is? Look for the empty tomb. That one. He has given evidence and has proven it. He has raised this one from the dead. He has triumphed over death itself. And he now reigns as king and will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 5. Off the lips of Jesus, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And again, in the same chapter, he has given the Son authority to execute judgment. This is the right, the assigned role, the authority of the Son to sit as judge over all the world. Not just over those who live in certain countries or who have a certain background or agree with a certain worldview or who think of themselves as being Christians like he's the judge of the Christian people. No. All peoples and all individual people everywhere. In naming Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, Jesus includes Old Testament cities that existed long before he walked the earth. And he names cities that were never a part of Israel, that were never a part of claiming even to be the covenant people, claiming to be the people beneath Moses, the people beneath the book of Moses, beneath Yahweh. Sodom existed in the place where Israel would eventually be. Tyre and Sidon were outside cities, sometimes allied with Israel, sometimes against it. Never Israelite. And Jesus speaks about their verdict as well. He is not just the judge of people of this book. He is the judge of people. 
from every land, from every city, from all the nations. He's the creator of all. From him and through him and to him are all things. He's been appointed to judge all, and that includes us today, all of us who live in a different time, in a different land, who have a different culture, who've been taught different types of religious things, who, who have one of the whole smorgasbord of ideas about who Jesus actually is. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's a spirit brother. He's a, a junior God. He's a, a simple man. He, it doesn't matter. The world offers up its alternatives and its reasons to think there are different paths, different ways, equal ways, and against it and over it all, the scriptures say, and the empty tomb says, he has raised one man and appointed him judge of everyone. There is a judgment. That is a good thing. Because that means there is a day when the righteousness of the one true God will finally be established on the earth. That is a good thing. There must be a judgment because there must be an end to wickedness. And the Lord Jesus is the one who will do it. I tell you, he says, I decide everyone's verdict on the day of judgment. What does he have to tell us about that verdict? That brings us to the second point. The second observation. And while this is not everything that could be said about the verdict, certainly not about judgment, it's what this passage says. Jesus' greatest wrath will fall on those who reject the clear call of his kingdom reign. Jesus' greatest wrath will fall on those who reject the clear call of his kingdom reign. At the end, when God the Son judges and assigns people to eternal judgment in hell forever. And pause there and realize how sobering that sentence is. When God the Son judges and assigns people to eternal judgment, a judgment that never ends, in hell, Forever. There are some who would like to say that hell is finite, that it ends at some point, that it goes away. The Bible disagrees. It is eternal judgment in hell forever. That is the sobering truth. We're dealing with the gravest of all realities here that are very intensely personal because they are about real people that we know. Perhaps about you, I don't know. About real people that we know. So we can't ever deal with this in a purely analytical like mind game sort of way, it is intensely personal and, and grave. We have to deal with it analytically to understand it. At the judgment, when Christ condemns people to hell, the punishment afflicted 
inflicted on them is real, but it is not the same for everyone. It is certainly hell for everyone. It is clearly awful. It is the lake of fire, as Revelation 20 repeatedly calls it. One that, as Jesus described it in Mark 9, it is an unquenchable fire, one that burns but never goes out. To be immersed in an unquenchable fire would be, as Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, 46, eternal punishment. It never ends. What is that like? I don't know. God has picked certain words and put them here so that we can have some idea what it would be like to be punished by a God who knows how to do what is right. To be punished forever, immersed in a lake of fire. It is an awful, awful thing. This is the teaching of Jesus himself in Mark and in Matthew. This should sober us. We should not wish this on our worst enemy. And in fact, God himself does not wish it on his worst enemy. Do you realize that? The testimony of God himself in the Bible, God himself says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There is wickedness. There is death of the wicked. And God takes no pleasure in it. But he's a just and righteous God. It, it is, it will be. But he takes no pleasure in it, which is why he constantly now, particularly in this time now, says, come. So he finishes by saying, so turn to me and live. Come and live. But most will not turn and trust him, but rather in maniacal pride resist him. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many walk it. Again, that's Jesus too. But when the many come to judgment, it is not uniform and identical, but is rather perfectly fitted to match the nature of the offenses. It's part of the justice of God is that the punishment is perfectly fitted to match the nature of the offenses. Jesus himself teaches this as well in Luke chapter 12. We'll come to this eventually. He has an illustration there of unfaithful servants, some of whom knew what unfaithfulness looked like and some of whom didn't. And he says, all are beaten as they deserve, but some with many blows and some with fewer. Based on what they knew and rejected. And that matches what he says later in Luke, in chapter 20, verse 47, about the wicked scribes, teachers in Israel who know the Scriptures, who should know better. He says of them that theirs is the greater condemnation. Condemnation and greater condemnation. In the justice of God, every sinful deed and thought receives the proper fitting punishment due to it. So, more sin more clear knowledge rejected, then there will be more wrath. Which is exactly what Jesus teaches here in our passage. Verse 12. Those cities reject you, messengers. 
Those cities reject you messengers who bring near to them the kingdom. He was just saying, well, I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for such towns. Same idea repeated in verse 14. It would be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. The statement is clear. You understand more bearable. We understand there's a, there's a comparison being made there. It's clear, but it is amazing because we just saw more sin brings more judgment, more punishment, more wrath. And seeing that, the question would arise in his hearers and should arise in us, how can anything be worse than Sodom? Jesus grabs Sodom for a reason. Sodom from Genesis 19. You can see it other places in the Old Testament and in the New. Sodom was considered to be one of, if not the worst, at least one of the most depraved cities due to its rampant homosexual practice. And that is sin. That is the sin of Sodom. Rampant homosexual practice. Ezekiel 16 addresses it again, pointing out, pride at its root, pride in Sodom that leads them to a whole bunch of sins, but particularly into abomination. That's what's picked up in Jude, verse 7. Jude's in the New Testament. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That's the part of the homosexual man for man. They all serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's Jude, verse 7. And that's Sodom. Destroyed by ever, forever by fire that fell from heaven. You read about it in Genesis 19. He poured out such fiery wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah and devastated the whole area that there actually was a debate of sorts that arose in Judaism. Considering the final judgment, would Sodom, would the men of Sodom actually even be raised to face that judgment? Or had God actually just brought the judgment back and poured it out on them already? All of the wicked will be raised to face judgment, but may maybe not them, because, man, what happened to them? Whew. Sodom is the existing prime example for Jesus and his audience of what wickedness and judged wickedness looks like, which should tell us a few things. First, as an aside, but as a useful aside, contrary to what our modern world assumes and is working very hard to teach and enforce, homosexual practice is not good and right and fine, but in fact is sin and brings God's judgment. Now, we just had a brief life training class on this subject and talked about a bunch of things related to it, Now's not the time to repeat all that class, but just to point out one key thing, I've said several times, homosexual practice. There is a difference, an important difference between, between homosexual practice and temptation. Temptation, like for all sin, temptation resisted is not sin. Temptation resisted is different than temptation perceived and given into in mind or in body practiced. 
There's a lot more we could say about that, but that's an important point to delineate, a critical point to delineate. That giving into and giving, giving free reign to homosexual practice is sin in the eyes of God. So let's be clear on that. And then let's immediately note how it's used in this passage. It's not the worst sin. That's the point. Jesus brings that up because he knows what people will think about it in his day. And he knows he's about to turn the tables. They surely assume that that is a prime example of the wickedness that Jesus is talking about. And he says, actually, no. It will be terrible for Sodom on that day, but by comparison... It will be more bearable for Sodom and for Sidon and for Tyre. Tyre, one of Tyre's kings, becomes in the Old Testament a model for what satanic rule looks like. That's why they're included here. It will be more bearable for, for Sodom, more bearable for model satanic rule, more bearable for rampantly homosexual society than it will be, get this, for plain old, sleepy, middle-class, respectable Israelite towns like Bethsaida and Capernaum. Who spend their days not trying to act like Satan and not practicing clear sexual sin, but getting up in the morning, going out fishing, coming back to the market, taking their kids to the beach, going to the synagogue, just living life. And when Jesus comes to town, seeing it, yawning and turning away. That is the problem. Satanic leadership and pride and sexual sin are nothing when compared to rejecting the call to come to the reign of King Jesus, which these towns clearly saw and heard, saw in Jesus, saw in his messengers, saw right in their midst, and refused. principle that we saw developed throughout the Bible, it still exists. Much sin, much wrath. And to have the kingdom of God drawn near, to have Jesus the King in his power drawn near, to see him himself or now today to see his appointed messengers, to see his spirit at work in his name, heal, cast out demons, Evidence of the kingdom's nearness. To hear, to see, to experience the nearness of the king and the call to come and find peace under Messiah's wing, to hear it all and to reject it and to refuse it, that is awful and it carries the most serious of warnings. Which carries the most serious of warnings to us today because that is where we live. We don't live in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. We live now here in the day of the harvest. What's going on right now? What's going on right now is that in a very unique way, God has taken the field. His Spirit is outpoured onto a church that is going to the ends of the earth and into every tongue and tribe and nation and declaring in word and in deed 
this is the king, and this is the kingdom, and here is hope with open hands in love. Come, 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 come. There is a unique and glorious and wonderful opportunity to be saved, and along with that, a heightened danger because of what is being rejected. We live in a unique time. We live now in the time of the harvest, which does both elevate the opportunity for salvation and the opportunity for greater judgment. Now, what about what was going on back then? Could people be saved back then? If you say now is the heightened opportunity for salvation, yes, people could be saved back then by trusting in the God of the Bible, faith in the God of the Bible to provide atonement for sin. That did happen. We can see it. It happened. It was rare. It is much more common now. Across all of the earth, it is much more common now. He is at work in all of the nations. The gospel is much more clearly known. Jesus is much more clearly known now. The Spirit is much more clearly at work now. The cross is much more clearly known now. And that means there is opportunity to hear and be saved and to hear and to refuse. There is a great offer made now by us, by the Scriptures, by Jesus now as He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we must realize that that does not end with a comma, or don't if you don't feel like it, but rather with a, but if you don't, oh my, Worse, worse is the condemnation that falls on such a response. Jesus wants us, and realize in his context, that's mostly a believing us to know that this message that goes forth now includes in it a piece of what is included is the, the truth, the reality of a waiting judgment that awaits not only the Hitlers and, and the ISIS terrorists of the world, but awaits our respectable, ethical, tolerant, religious, perhaps, but unbelieving American neighborhoods, workplaces. Our message to all, which we go preaching clearly, without need of compulsion or cleverness, certainly without manipulation or window dressing, without pride and without shame, but in humble, humble love, humble love, as God's spokespeople, we open our mouths to those he has placed us near and invite them to be reconciled to God. To trust this Christ and find peace with God. 
And very, very often, he will bring us across the paths of people who are, in, who are in touch with that right now, who realize, I need that peace with God. I, I am not reconciled to God. I understand that. But sometimes, that's a peace that we need to introduce to the conversation. Through tears, not through triumph, not through boasting, with clarity. And then we step away and leave the results to him. People will respond one way or another to what we say. And to help us with that, we have a third observation. We need to remember who is the object of the response we encounter. We need to remember who, I wrote that with a capital W, is the object of the response we encounter. Another way you could say this is we need to remember who's actually having the conversation and that we aren't it. Verse 16 revisits the point we saw last week, but in a slightly different and more direct way. Up above, verses 9 to 11, Jesus told us that we stand in the stead of God that the kingdom comes near in our lives and in our words. So he's presenting himself through us. Well, same thing here, put more directly and more positively at first, because some will receive. There is a great harvest to be brought in. That, that's that's the, the beginning analogy. There's a harvest. The, so the one who hears you, he says, hears me. One who listens to and in a receiving, accepting way. You're doing the talking, but, but the one that he hears, one who is heard and responded to by her, is the son. And that happens. Good. That, that's good. That happens. But he says more about rejection because it's going to happen more often. The one who rejects you rejects me, and in fact, in rejecting me, rejects the one who sent me, God the Father. The common point in both sides of that, the common point is the same. Jesus is present with us, presenting himself through us. He's the one who triggers the response that we see and sometimes feel. He's the object of the positive response, and he's the object of the negative response. People will thank us or curse us, but really it's not about us. It's about God, which doesn't remove any need for us to think about what we say or how we say it. Clear and culturally appropriate communication matters and, in fact, is very important, but it is not decisive. It's not, not the foundation at the bottom level. It's not primary. The real issue, what's going on, is that people are meeting God and responding to God. Jesus tells us this, who would be witnesses of his, because he knows we're going to go out and face a whole bunch of responses and we're going to be inclined to think on this plane. 
It's, it's the way we work. We're going to be inclined to think on this plane and think that we are the ones who triggered the responses and we are the one being responded to. And certainly it sounds like that, feels like that. And so we're going to try to shape the response. We're going to try to make it in a certain way or, or stop making it in a certain way so that there will be a different reaction we experience. We're going to focus on technique and skills and we're going to start telling people what they want to hear and ways they want to hear it. Some of that is just wise communication, but we are going to easily get off track, which is why he tells us this. This is God's harvest. And he calls us into it to join him in his work of seeking out people and gathering in people everywhere. We go praying, we go faithfully speaking the message about peace in Christ and the need for peace that reconciliation for God and the need for reconciliation. We speak in humble love, praying, and then we mentally kind of step out of the way and let the conversation happen. We leave the results to him, and God is making his appeal through us. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep will hear my voice. It's going to sound like yours, but they'll hear my voice through your voice and they will follow me. Jesus, they'll hear me when they hear you. They'll respond positively to you, and that will be responding positively to me. So when that happens, we must not be proud. We didn't make it happen. Salvation is of the Lord. And when that doesn't happen, which will be often, there's nothing to be afraid of or ashamed of or to feel like a failure in, to shrink back from. He tells us this to remind us they reject us when they reject us because when you trace that through, they want nothing to do with God. They reject you and they reject me and they reject me. They reject the one who sent me. Why do they reject you? because they want nothing to do with God. The world by nature is at enmity with God and hostile towards him. Sometimes it doesn't show up. It doesn't show up until we say that's a problem, and then it shows up. And Jesus tells us this so that we understand what's going on, so we have a realistic view of what he's called us to be and to do. I send you out as sheep among wolves, he just said. Some will hear you. There is a harvest. Many will not. But realize when they don't hear you, it's because they, they don't hear me. Lack of response, positive response, is not your problem. You just draw near. Our job is to bring him near. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, how often Jesus emphasized in love. These two things do not contradict one another. Clarity about a judgment and in love don't contradict each other or else Jesus is a contradiction himself. 
They need not contradict themselves. We can and we must draw near to people and in love be, remember the Sermon on the Mount, be kind and be merciful and not be judgmental of people, but to, to constantly love them and to lay down our lives for them, not just those who respond positively to us, but even to our enemies. We draw near to them and love and in word and in deed bring in ourselves a kingdom near. And as the Spirit of God owns us, and as our minds are set on Him, like we talked about at the end of last week, as our minds are set on and fixed on, captivated by Him, there will be something in our words and something in our demeanor which will bear witness to a kingdom that is real and that is coming that will overshadow and tear down every kingdom on the earth. But that at the moment right now, there is a plea from the coming king. There is a plea with an open hand, come now and find life. There is no hammer now. There is an open-handed offer. Both of those things, they are difficult to balance out. But as we in, in love attempt to give our lives to other people, God will balance them out for us and they will hear his voice. Or they will not. And that's between them and God, not us. We are talking here about, right now in this moment, we are talking about, and when we sit across the table, of, across a cup of coffee or in a classroom, on a, on a bus, we talk to people and we interact with them. We are, we are touching, we are stepping into the most important issues in all of life. Cosmic issues, eternal issues. Jesus puts this in front of us. Now, I know whenever I'm talking to a mixed group of people or, or something that's going to be passed on to somewhere else, I, I might be talking to a non-Christian at some point, but I'm talking to the church now. I'm talking to Christians now. Jesus is talking to us, and he's not, and I'm not talking to you, Christian, about your possible eternal destiny. That's not what's on the plate here. You're a believer. But what he's talking to you is what you carry in your hands and what you carry on your lips is of such importance. And it comes to us in a way that should make us, I think perhaps even we can experience it in this moment, that that. We're not accustomed to thinking and to, to interacting with issues like this, like this. We so very often take life far too lightly. We consider such weighty things too rarely, too quickly. We shun sober-mindedness. is too bad because the end result of that can only be shallowness and lightness and that ironically cannot produce the depth of joy we are all after we shun sober mindedness attempting to be happy and we, we shoot ourselves in the foot and sober mindedness does not mean being morose it does not mean being I like somebody I heard somewhere that somebody compared sober mindedness and somber those are two different words and two different ideas, and I'm not talking about being somber. 
frowning all the time. Talking about sober-mindedness, which is not being morose or somber or sad or angry or dark. It means deep. It means giving weighty things proper weight. It means giving deep things proper depth and big things proper mental and heart space. We are unsettled in life too easily because we think things are big and weighty which are not big and weighty. And we don't realize that because we have no perspective. We have no dealing with the depths. The remedy to such unsettledness, we are unsettled in life. The remedy and therefore the path to hope-driven joy is to sit before these types of realities and say, Oh my, this is serious. And then to consider God's deliberate sending of His Son to give you life, Christian, so that you will never actually know what this sermon was really about. Think about that. Neither you nor I really know what I was just talking about, and we never will. Think about that. God sent his son to bear the dreadful cost of your rejection, and he bore it away. As far as the east is from the west, he has taken it off of you and thrown it away into the pit and it is gone off of you. And all that remains on you is blessed, honored son, daughter. By his purpose, by his choice, deliberately, not incidentally, he came to seek out and to save you. You have been seriously, truly, deeply, immensely saved and made new. Who can be against you? Now, you've heard all that before. That, that's, those are several Bible verses there. You've heard all that. Have you thought about it? Because what can separate you from that love? Nothing. It's Paul's point in Romans 8. Not a thing on earth. Not even your death. So when you go out as lambs among the wolves, nothing can separate me from the love of this Christ. And you actually believe it. That big, serious thing is the first thing you place in the bucket, and it's in there, and nothing else has room. This sober-minded thinking is the path to profound stability in the midst of chaos, and the path to profound joy amidst sorrow, and the path to hope amidst what would be despairing. It is the path to persistent, pure, prayerful, bold witness. To have considered these truths and thought that is serious and that has been seriously dealt with for me by him. To be a laborer in love who can afford to give away my life because my real life, my life in him is untouchable. To be a laborer in love for God and for others requires that we consider such things as this sober-mindedly and realize the glory of God who has acted to deal with them for you forever. 
You are a safe and secure people. Ones that he then calls to himself and says, there, go, go give, your, give your life away, then give your life away. And if we have sat in thought, and if the Spirit of God has so moved in us to convince us of this, then, then our response will be, sure, where? I want to follow you. Here's my life, where's my cross? Christ is a judge there is a day of judgment. It is serious. And as he says in the coming passage, there is great cause for rejoicing in us as we consider my name is written in heaven. I'm a secure believer. The response that comes out of that is, here's my life, use me. Let me pray towards that end for us now. Father, would you raise up laborers one by one and as a church, would you raise up laborers here by convincing us of the seriousness of the real issues at hand and of our security in you in the face of them. Through such sober-minded thinking, Father, will you produce a people who are seriously happy. Who know what profound joy true freedom feels like. who look at the world and understand it, who walk with you intimately and testify to a kingdom that is here now in hope and will come in fullness later. Make us a people like that, please. Honor your name here in our midst, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are good and you are gracious. You are our hope and you are a sure hope and we say thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.